0: Take your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Father, thank you for preserving your word, and we thank you that you have promised to open the heart to the truth of your word. And Lord, for those who under the sound of my voice may be outside of Christ, may you show them. Uh, their predicament. May you show them their need of your Son. May you grant them repentance. Grant them faith. And let those who have come, that may not know Christ, leave with new life. And for us, Father, may we see with a greater intensity the heinous nature of sin and how wicked we truly are outside of Christ and, and that our high view of you would show us our low view of ourselves. And allow us to be transformed, even your children. Wake us out of our slumber if we fall and pray to the lawlessness across the land that has brought us into a lukewarm state. And so, Father, may you have your way as the potter, we the clay. Would you deal with us right where we're at, individually, at our point of need. And may collectively we hear from the word of God, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we continue to work our way through Romans, we've come to uh, the second session, or the second section, I should say, in the letter to the Romans. The letter to the Romans. And as you look at Romans 3 unfolding, it's important, as I mentioned last week, that we keep the context. That we see how this overall, what Paul is trying to accomplish, beginning in chapter 1... Uh, verse 16 and 17. As I read this and I saw how this all comes together, uh, very logical and methodical is the apostle. And he does this uh, in a way to bring everyone under condemnation. Not a single person is free from guilt before the living God. And as he does this, he does it in what we may call a sandwich approach. He starts out in Romans 1, 16 and 17, after his very affectionate greeting to a people he's yet to see, he he would stand out and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all that would believe, the Jew and the Gentile. And so even before he gets into the condemnation of all humanity, he stands tall and saying, this is the good news. And so there's the first piece of bread, so to speak, uh, on this sandwich. And then from verse 18 all the way through to where we're at today, verse 20 of chapter 3, is we have the substance of the sandwich. And the substance is the wrath of God upon those uh, who fall under that which is every one of us. And then in beginning in verse uh, 21 through chapter 4, verse 25, he would put the other piece of bread on this wonderful sandwich. And it would be the unfolding of the gospel and the, and the application of what Christ has done to the believing uh, sinner. And so we see then this wonderful, logical way that he has laid out uh, the plight of man and the, and the answer that God has given First there's the gospel, then there's the establishment of the need of the gospel, and then there's the application of the gospel. And so as we work our way through this, we're in the second portion, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. And what Paul is doing is what he's already done, but now he does so with a very rifled approach. He is going to bring the guilt of all humanity to bear once again. Jew and Gentile alike, and he's going to prove this by Scripture. He's going to prove this by the very oracles that they had and they did not heed. And as we look at verses 9 through 20, we're going to break this up in in two messages uh, today and, Lord willing, next week. And I want us to look at first, uh, in the opening, verses 9 uh, through 12, is the human condition defined. The human condition defined. And then from verse 13 to 18, we'll see the the human condition described. And so what we have here is the Apostle Paul uh, bringing uh, to our minds and to the uh, recipients of his letters, he's going going to tell them uh, what is wrong with them. What is wrong with them. And then he'll give the evidence from Scripture uh, what they do because what is wrong with them. And if we look in verse 9, this is what we see him coming out. He doesn't get to start to dress conduct. He begins to dress their condition. And he says this in Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. And he's already spent a lengthy amount of time acknowledging to those Jews that yes, privileges matter. But privileges matter not when it comes to the issue of Salvation. Is no privilege that you had, Jewish folks, the chosen uh, will allow you to get a pass when God brings judgment upon all who have violated the oracles or the law of God. But what he's going to do now is, uh, as he says, we've already charged that all are under sin. He's going to remind them and even go into deeper measurement what is their condition. What has caused all this unfolding of chapter 1, verse 18? And we see the debauchery of humanity, and we see all the sin that has permeated. Why is that so? And he says, because they are under sin. Under sin. Now, he's already reminded them, verse 18 through 32 of chapter 1, that wicked people approve wicked behavior. As a result, they are guilty. And then, not to leave the hypocrite aside, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 8, he's going to say, You too, hypocrite, though you may disapprove of the wicked behavior, you do the wicked behavior. And now he says, Why do you do that? In verse 9, it's because you are under the power of sin. You are under sin. When I read this and I started thinking about being under something, and oftentimes, you wake up on a cold morning, and, and you're, you're snuggled in with a nice blanket, and you don't want to throw that off. You'd like to stay for maybe another 15 minutes. You, you, you hit the snooze again. And no, but eventually, and perhaps with, with, with dread, you've got to toss the blanket off, and you've got to go about your day. This is a blanket you can't throw off. You are under this heavy blanket, you can't throw that off. And so what we have then is Paul is saying that you are under the bondage of a master. That's what the the words actually mean, under sin. It means that you are under the bondage, that you are having something lording it over you, that you are imprisoned, that you are subordinate under something that you can't help, nor can you change. To be under the power of sin is the condition of every human being. And that's how he would begin this final, this final blow to all humanity. It's not what you do that makes you bad. It's what you are that makes you do what you do. And he wants you to understand that you're under this heavy bondage, that you're under this mastery, this slavery of sin, which you have no power nor desire to get out from under. In chapter 6 of Romans, uh, when we get there, we'll look at this in more length. He uses one word that is a wonderful exposition of what chapter 3 says, being under sin. And in Romans 6, 14, he would say, for sin will not have dominion over you. Dominion. That word dominion means to make one subordinate. It means to lord it over. To prevail over. And friends, that's what we are by birth. That's what we are by choice. And that's what we are as it was passed down from our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Is that every one of us find our human condition is under sin. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul would also add to this. He says, but the scripture has imprisoned everything and everyone under sin. He would use the same words, under sin, in this letter to a church that had been drifting into a false gospel. And he says you are imprisoned in this. I think that's a question we must ask ourselves, even as Christians, do we understand the dominion power that sin had over us, or if you're not a Christian today, are you understanding, and will God open your heart to show you that you are under a blanket that you cannot shake off? There was a well-known uh, pastor of another time. Uh, he ministered in London, and he lived on a street where he could look out his window, and is where they carted all the prisoners that were headed to prison. His name was Dr. Ives. And Dr. Ives would go to the window and he would look outside and he'd watch these carts taking the prisoners to prison. And he would look out and he would see them and he would say this, there goes Dr. Ives. There goes Dr. Ives. And the people that was in his company, when he would say that, they were wondering, well, what do you mean? And he used that as an illustration to, to show everyone The depravity of man. In fact, the total depravity of man. And he was saying, oh, but for the grace of God, there go I down that street. Because as they are under sin, so was I under sin. That's an important perspective to have. Because it keeps you humble. And it keeps you grateful for the power of the gospel. But as Paul would look at this in in Romans chapter 3, and he would say uh, in verse 9 that we are under sin, or no better off, that we are under sin, all Jews and Gentiles alike, he would go on, starting in verse 10, and he would bore down on this. And he's going to say, it's one thing for me to say that you are under the bondage of sin, that you are uh, having it lorded over you. He's going to show us, in verse 10, he says, as it is written, he's going to show us how permeated we are with this sin. He's actually going to show us total depravity. Friends, we are not partially broke. Uh, We are not partially, you know, we're not partially do things wrong. We are absolutely, totally broke. And that Paul is going to address all the areas of our depravity in this. If you read through verses uh, 10 up through 18, you're going to see there's the condition in the first couple verses of that. And then you're going to see the manifestations of those as he talks about speech. As he talks about conduct. And then he talks about the chief cause of all those things in verse 18. That there is no fear of God. And when you look around our nation today... And you see how it continues to spiral down towards death. This is a characteristic of what's wrong. Verse 18, there is no fear of God. And we'll get there at another time. But for now, we want to look at how he, how he uh, defines the human condition. He says you're under sin and here is the areas that you are under sin and is every part of your makeup. You are totally depraved in heart, you are totally depraved in mind, and you are totally depraved in will. And so as we look at this, we find that he says, as it is written, notice that in verse 10, as it is written, Paul is now appealing to the Jews to the very thing that they were given, the oracles of God. And they had already uh, abused and neglected that great privilege. But now he looks at them and says, the very things that you claim as a privilege is the very thing that brings you under the dominion of sin. And it brings you under the bondage of sin. Calvin says of the words, as it is written, Paul now begins to reason from authority. And it is to the Christian the strongest kind of proof when authority is derived from the one true God. End quote. Now, as we saw last week, that there was this blasphemous dialogue that could have very well occurred between the Jews. That Oh, so if we just go ahead and sin a lot and our unrighteousness, well, that jeopardized God's uh, righteousness or his faithfulness. So Paul is now going to said, listen, I'm going to use the argument or the defense from the very word that you came to believe as it is written. And what does he do? He quotes three Old Testament scriptures. He will quote three Old Testament scriptures given the evidence of what he's going to unfold in Romans uh, 3, uh, 9 through 18. And that is that their condemnation is just. That's how he ended verse 8. Their condemnation is just. Psalm 14, 1 through 3, he quotes this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. You can see that all through the Romans text. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have been corrupt. And there is none who does good, not even one. He also would quote Psalm 53. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And then finally he would quote Solomon, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So these Old Testament references... Affirm the New Testament truths of our captivity to sin. So what does that mean for us? There are voices in our country today occupying pulpits that say the Old Testament is irrelevant. There are people today that dismiss the validity of the Old Testament. Paul has used the very oracles of God to declare a truth that is amplified and magnified throughout the New Testament, and that is man is corrupt to the core. Man is depraved to the core. And so I find that very encouraging because you know, you know why, and you know this, but I'll remind you this, is that you can trust this book from Genesis to Revelation. You can trust this book from the, from the beginning to the end because truly from Genesis 1-1 to the very end of the last verse in the Revelation, this is the Word of God. And the unfolding of verses 9 through 12, we find, as I mentioned, the truth of man's total depravity. And his total detra- uh, depravity by nature. By nature. Every part of us was impacted in the fall. Our heart, our mind, and our wills. So I, I stay with me as we work through this, because this is critical to understand. Because if we have a light view of sin we are going to have a very light view of God's view on sin. And when there's a light view of sin, that means all kinds of things will be tolerated in your life. And that means that you will allow pet sins, or as uh, Jerry Bridges would say, you will allow respectable sins. Is We should lament lament the, the sin of pornography, and we should lament equally the sin of a critical spirit. Is that we should lament the abortion, uh, heinous abortion crimes in our land, our sin. We should lament that. But we should also lament our pious, false, pious pride. The problem is is if you have a low view of God, you'll have a low view of sin. And you will pick and choose which sin you want to go to battle against. And you'll also pick which sins that you will look around and pick on others with. So when we talk about total depravity, it, it is the truth of the Scripture. And if rightly understood by the Christian, it should produce such an overwhelming gratitude for the power of gospel. The gospel, that was the only thing that pulled that blanket of sin away from you. And if you're not a Christian here today and a company this size, it's probably true. If you're not a Christian today, I want to tell you something. You are wasting your time trying to take that blanket off of you. You cannot. Why? Because you are totally depraved. Is that your mind is corrupt, your heart is morally destitute, and your will is held captive. And so, uh, a good illustration of this. Now, when we say total depravity, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It doesn't mean we're, total, we're as bad as we could be. But it does mean that there's not a single part of the components of our being human has not been touched by that. And touched in a sense that uh, not in a little way. I've been reading a book by Jim Orrick, and it's really good. Uh, He gave an illustration of total depravity. Uh, And this is what he said. Quote, we put a sponge into a a bucket of vinegar. Now picture this. We put a a sponge into a bucket of of vinegar. Now you know when you put a sponge in in something of liquid. Uh, The sponge becomes saturated with the vinegar. There's not a single part of the sponge that has not been touched by, you know, vinegar. He says, it's so full that the sponge cannot contain any more. If we remove the sponge from the bucket of vinegar and squeeze it as hard as we possibly could, no matter how hard we did, every bit of the sponge would still be damp with vinegar. I think, you know, it's a pretty good illustration. And he says, if we would even cut off any part of that sponge and you held it, it would still be damped, and if you put it up to your nose, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get vinegar. The point that Oric that makes is this. No human being, while similar, while no human is completely saturated with sin, every component of human nature has been adversely affected by sin. If we separate and examine the various components of human nature, every part is wet with sin and smells like sin. Now, we're going to talk uh, about these components because if we don't understand the magnitude of what happened in the fall, and if we don't understand the magnitude of the condition that every human being is before God, then we will not magnify the gospel, and we will not live lives of gratitude for the gospel. And so the first thing we see, look at verse 10. Paul says, as it is written, and now he brings to bear you know, the canon of fire of Scripture to convince these individuals, Jews and in Gentiles, the Roman church, that they are indeed totally depraved. Is that they are indeed in, in a dire situation under a blanket they cannot remove. And the first one he says, there is none, none is righteous, no, not one. Do you notice what he doesn't say? He's going to say that later. He doesn't say, there is none that don't do any righteousness. There is none that don't act righteously. Well, obviously that's true, but no, there is none who is righteous. He's establishing the, the, the nature. And when you look at this word righteous, and there's different applications of righteousness and righteous in Romans. There certainly is the judicial aspect of it. Hence, we get to uh, later on in Romans 3 and further, we get the judicial uh, implication of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. Then there's the righteousness that is of conduct. And in this case here, righteous or righteousness is in a moral sense. And where does all conduct originate from? The heart. It comes from the heart. And Paul is saying, there is not a single one of you that is righteous. That your nature is not righteous. And friends, you can't be partially righteous. You don't get a, well, I'm, I'm, I'm partially bad. No, no, you're not. And I say this because I love you. You are totally bad. I am totally bad. By birth, by the imputation of Adam, sin upon us, by our own volition, we are not partially bad. And it all begins with a morally destitute heart. If there's anything of value today, get this. Who we are determines what we do. Who we are determines what we do. And where is the originating uh, source of our conduct? It's our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. And what does the Lord Jesus say is a result of a wicked tongue and of wicked, immoral thoughts and of conduct. Matthew 15, 16 through 20, Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? And yes, the totally depraved person has no understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach and is expelled? Do you not see that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? This defiles a person. When you hear someone using worldly language or their speech is ungodly or their speech is just, you know, like a sailor, when you hear that type of, I can say that. When, when you hear that type of speech, always remember this. The tongue is a neutral member. The tongue takes orders from the heart. Jesus says it's out of the heart The mouth speaks. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. A lot of those statements Paul already stated in Romans chapter 1. And so when you look at the depravity of a person, you don't measure it by conduct first. You measure by the fact that we have morally destitute hearts, that we are unrighteous from the core. And that's what produces what we do. Jeremiah said, 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? Friends, that's what makes the Christian and the Christian life so radical. Now, I don't know if we have any heart surgeons among us. We did have some doctors, and we may have some doctors. But I can tell you, individually, you're not a heart surgeon. You can't change your heart. Now, you may try to put some restraint on your conduct. But Christianity is not behavioral change. It's heart transformation. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, the Lord says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And notice this, I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of the stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is the fundamental truth of being a Christian. When Paul says, at it is written, there is none righteous, he said, at it is written, there is not a single one of you that is morally upright because you have a morally destitute heart. And that heart cannot be altered, it has to be replaced. Steve Lawson, in his excellent book, New Life in Christ, what really happens when you're born again and why it matters, Lawson said this, quote, In the new birth, God gives a new new heart for a new start in life. This divine operation produces the most positive life change we could ever experience. Being born again removes our old heart and replaces it with a new one. Previously, we had no heart for God. We had no spiritual life within us But the second birth implants a new heart for God and from God. That's where it all begins. It's truly the heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. And that out of the heart flows our conduct. Our speech and what we will see later in Romans chapter 3, what our feet do, it all flows from, uh, from the heart. Now as we talk about these components in total depravity, the heart, the mind, and the will, you know, I know the Bible speaks a lot about the heart uh, in, in, encompassing the very seat of our personality. And, so, and it does. And so these are all connected, obviously. You don't just parse them. And so when we're talking about the human condition, we're talking about the whole condition. And that the heart, the mind, and the will are all inseparably linked to make up the person. But friends, you've got to understand, and I've got to understand, that I don't need to change my behavior. I need to come to a God who is holy, 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 and has labeled out the sins that I've done against Him, and that it isn't changing my behavior. I need Him to change my nature. I need Him to change my being. That's why it is totally impossible for someone to profess to be a Christian and live a life unchanged unchanged. Now I'm not dismissing the struggles we have with sin. We certainly have those struggles but John says that they did not continue with us because they were not of us. That principle applies in regards to the new life. You simply, if you get a new heart from the living God, you simply cannot remain unchanged. A heart transplant changes you and it changes you to where the things that you used to take pleasure in, you now hate. And the things that you used to partake in uh, that brought you great pleasure, you now look at those with such remorse and regret. There's the radical nature of new birth. And so one of the great ways we can determine if we've come to that point, and if God has granted us a re, a, a Uh, uh, repentance and faith and we've experienced new birth Uh, we can know that by looking at our life and say have I seen these changes has there been this progressive getting out from under the blanket of sin has it no longer had dominion over me but now look at verse 11 not only do we see that there is none morally right because they have a morally destitute heart and, and I hope, as I, as I harped on the, harp, the heart there for a long time, I don't want any of you walking away here saying, I'm going to try to do better. Don't walk away here saying, well, I'm, I'm just going to try to do better. I'm just going to put some restraint on my tongue. Call me Wednesday and see how long that lasts. Is the fact is, you can't, you can't do what only God can do. Only the Creator can create a new heart. And there's nothing you can do about that. Except, and we'll get that toward the end of the message. Verse eleven: Our total depravity extends to not only our heart, our being morally destitute, but it also has impacted, saturated like vinegar to a sponge, our thinking. Our thinking. Paul would say, in "Verse eleven: No one understands." So he goes from, "No, uh, none is righteous; none are moral." He says, "No, by the way, none of you understand." Well, where is understanding? Understanding, it means to perceive or to comprehend. And the seat of understanding is obviously the mind. Is the mind. And like a corrupt heart being universal in humanity, so is a corrupt mind. I told you earlier, who we are determines what we do. I'll add a little tag to that. How you think determines how you live. How you think determines how you live. So goes our thinking, so goes our living. Remember the last act we read in Romans 1? When God says enough to a nation, to a people? He gave them over to their lust. He gave them over to further debauchery. And the very last thing He gave them over to was what? A debased mind. A reprobate mind. And when a reprobate mind is, is given over, there's no repentance. Because you can't change your mind. And so Paul is saying that no one understands. And that if, if you look at, at how the mind plays in the Christian life, I would encourage you to do a, a study of the mind. I'm not sure there's any New Testament letter uh, that does not address the mind in some fashion. Is that the mind determines how you live. And that's why the very first application in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, what's the very first application? Be ye conformed to the world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Well, then, if if man is totally destitute morally with his heart completely, completely just poisonous and and depraved, needing a new heart, what about the mind? Well, we saw early on in the beginning of uh, creation, it wasn't long after uh, the Garden of Eden, that God saw the depravity or the corruption of, God's, uh, of His people's minds. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. There's the heart, producing wicked conduct. He says that every, now get a hold of this. Every intention of the thoughts and of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought continually. Friends, you can't believe for one second that you outside of Jesus Christ have a good thought before the eyes of God. You do not. We think nothing but evil continually. They say, well, I don't have evil thoughts. I'm not talking what we think it is. We can't define good by what we think it is. And that's where we get in all kinds of trouble is we will take things that we understand humanly and implant that upon God and think that's the way He thinks. And one of the greatest examples of that is the simple word love. Our world has so hijacked that word that love is now defined as infatuation, lust, and overly consumed with what have you done for me lately. That's not biblical love. And so when we look at this here and the scripture says every intention of the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually, we have to accept that for exactly what it is, is because we are so totally depraved and so morally destitute in the heart and our mind has been so radically impacted by the garden is that we have no ability nor desire outside of Christ to think one thought that is acceptable before the living God. The apostle Paul would graphically define such a corrupt mind. In Ephesians chapter 4, I'll read it. You don't need to turn to it. The point is, he says, none is righteous, morally destitute. You're totally depraved. None, No, no one understands. You have a corrupt mind. The seat of your understanding is broke. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And notice what he says. In the futility or the vanity of their minds. They are darkened in where? Their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance. Ignorance. That is in them. When he begins, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, and to bring those believers back to remembering what they were, he places so much emphasis on their corrupt mind. He says that they walked in the vanity of their minds. They were darkened in their understanding. You can't get very far in the dark. And there's ignorance in them that has pervasively just corrupted everything that they could ever think. Do you see how bad sin is? Do you see how bad this blanket that we're under truly is? My heart isn't just sick. My heart is destitute of any morality acceptable before the living God. And my mind, my mind is so polluted with myself and my world that I have no ability nor desire to think rightly before the living God. Now, I say all that in the past tense. Because if you're a true Christian today, then you'll understand, and certainly you should be growing into this, the fact is you got a new heart, and with the new heart comes new desires. And you should also understand that you now have the capacity to think right as you transform your mind into proper thinking patterns. The reason why a lot of Christians struggle in their thinking, I think for a couple reasons. And the first and one, one is we don't read enough. We don't read enough. And I, I'm, I'm not talking about books. We don't read enough of our Bible. And if you're not being transformed by the word in your mind, then you are being conformed by the world in your mind. And think about this past week. Has most of your thoughts been worldly, been anchored to this life? And I'm not dismissing responsibilities, And I'm not dismissing, but a lot of our stress and a lot of our worry and a lot of our anxiety is because of bad thinking, bad thinking. And the more that the word of God is shaping your thinking, the more that you'll be able to destroy and to bring every thought captive unto obedience of Christ that Paul would tell us in the Corinthian letters. Well, now we look at the will. The third component in our humanness, totally deprived. Paul would tell us in verse 10, the heart is not righteous. Number 11, verse 11, the mind is corrupt, no one understands. But also in verse 11, in verse 12. He says, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now he uses the language here. None, no one, no one, no one, not even one. Because he wants to make this very clear that nobody gets a pass. You can grow up in a Christian home and you can grow up under the godly influence and protection of your parents and Praise God that we have those families. But even in that safe environment, no one understands. No one is immune. No one does good. New birth is for the the prisoner on the cart in London being taken to prison, as well as the moral, nice child in the home under Christian influence. All must be born again. All have destitute hearts. All have corrupt minds. But now we see the captive will. No one seeks God. Why? Because they don't want to. And they have no ability to. They've all turned aside willingly. They've all become worthless willingly. Remember in chapter 1, toward the very end of it, He says in verse 32, though they know God's righteous degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to them. What is that? That is an exercise of the will as determined by the nature. And Paul would go on in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, now listen to this, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It's not just the passions of the flesh. It's the mind that influences the heart and moves the will. Jonathan Edwards wrote a very extensive, and I'll confess, a difficult uh, treatise on the will, the freedom of the will. Well, I'm not going to talk a lot about that because I don't understand a lot of it. <laughs> but this is based on what he said. Edwards would say that the will is the servant of the mind. The will is the servant of the mind and will do what the mind orders, have you thought about that in your will? And what Edward's point is, is that the mind, because of its, its total depravity and because of its corruption, it will always move the will to our fallen nature. And outside of Jesus Christ, that's always true. Now, someone has said, and new people say, and there's many books written, so well, well, we have free will. And I would, I would look at you and say, you're absolutely right, we do have free will. We do have free will. However, The will, if it is the servant of the mind, and if our mind is totally corrupt, that means the exercise of your free will, it will always be bent away from God. It will never be bent towards God. You will not choose God because you can't choose God, nor do you want to choose God. Why? Because your will is in bondage under the blanket of sin. And the nature determines our choices. And our mind, which is part of either the new nature or the old nature or the fallen nature, if we are indeed totally outside of Christ, if we're outside of Christ, then every choice you make is an exercise of your will, and it will always be against God. It will never go towards God. And if you look at your own life, if God has mercifully brought you to His Son, you'll look back and you'll see... You didn't make a decision for Christ. You were apprehended by Christ. And as you grow in that understanding, now I'm not saying you didn't believe, that you are responsible for that. But it's, it's, it's interesting to watch new birth grow. I believed in Jesus. I received Christ. I, I, I. And, and, and you did. But as you grow in that experience, you know what happens? The pronoun I starts to fall off the shelf. Him. Him, him, wasn't you. You were apprehended. You just responded to the apprehended, being apprehended. That's what it is. And so when you look at this understanding of the will, you have free will. You do not have free will in concerns to salvation. And the problem with that, I know people are kind of like, even now, but you need to understand something. Unless God regenerates you and gives you a new heart, you have no capacity whatsoever to choose God, nor will you, nor do you want to. You have to be born again. And the order is important. You don't exercise faith in Christ, then you're born again. That's not how it works. You're born again, and then you respond to Christ. That's regeneration. John 1 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He said, "Well, that makes me a robot." Absolutely not. Well, then how can I reconcile? You can't. <laughs> well, I don't understand election. He chose me, but then I choose him. Yeah, you're right. What else can we talk about? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm not dismissing the need for a, a debate and to investigate that. And I know it's a struggle. When you start to be awakened to the doctrines of grace, it can be traumatic. It can really be traumatic. But when you start understanding the wonderful nature of a God who loved totally depraved sinners who were, who, who were his enemy and that he came to you and gave you a heart that you could not get on your own and when he began to transform your mind from being totally corrupted and enmity against him to now you delight in him and you want to obey the great command to love the Lord thy God with all thy strength, all thy might, all thy heart and all thy mind. And then when you see that your will was held captive, and that's what Timothy says, Paul said to Timothy that we are held captive to the will of Satan. When we understand that we are in a prison, we had no key out, and God in his mercy through the gospel comes to us and frees us from that, opens up the door, and says, I've come to preach good news to the poor. I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives. I've come to recover sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Then you shout, praise God for such amazing sovereign grace. Now I will say this that, there are, that that there is a seeker of sinners. There's no sinners that seek God. There are sinners There are sinners that are being sought, and there's one seeker. That's why what we've seen is the, uh, the, the, the church movement of seeker, seeker churches, uh, stuff, that's kind of fell by the wayside, because it, it offers nothing. There's no substance there. And so what you see then is that there is one seeker. But the hour is coming, Jesus would say, the woman at the well. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And Jesus says in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That verb, draw, is the same one that's used for the fishermen that pulled their nets. He, he, he drags us to his son. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You say, well, I'm not kicking. No, you're not kicking and screaming. But what a great comfort and security to know that the Father drags you to the Son. Why? Because you couldn't drag yourself. None righteous, morally destitute. There's none that understand because of a corrupt mind. And there's none that will seek Him because you have a captive will. But praise God, because Paul is going to show them, but now, the righteousness of God. And hence the gospel. And when we start understanding total depravity, I'm going to close with this. Here's the application for all of us today. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 51. As I mentioned earlier, there's two groups of people here. There are those who know Christ and are praising Him because He has freed them. He has, he has removed that blanket upon top of you. So you're, you're free. You're in Christ. You understand your depravity and how helpless you really were and then there's others here uh, who've yet to come to know christ and i pray that you'll leave today understanding how desperately broke you are and how you can't change anything you can do one thing run to christ you say well how do i know he's drawing me don't worry about that But here's the application first for the christian I see in my own life, my wife and I were talking a little bit last night, and I said to her, I said, I need to know more and more how bad sin is, even as a Christian. Because there's so much in the world that pushes us to grow indifferent and indifferent to sin. As I mentioned earlier, that we, have a, we can degree sin and give ourselves a pass on certain sins. Well, for the Christian, here's the application is it like David, we would understand the depth of our depravity. Look at Psalm 51, verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving, your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. There's three words there that, deprive, that, that define our depravity. David doesn't just say, Lord, just cleanse me from my sin, because he knew how heinous, how heinous his crimes were because he's got an understanding of his nature. The first word there, blot out my transgressions, that word transgression, it means to willfully go against forbidden boundaries. It means to rebel against revealed boundaries. What did the Jews do? They rebelled against the oracles of God. It's exactly what Paul said. The next thing David says is wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That's not conduct. That's the next. David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Wash me thoroughly from my nature. Iniquity points to what we are by birth. Transgressions point to what we've done by way of rebellion. And then cleansing from my sin is the conduct that always falls short before God. Do you see how thorough he understood himself? And for the Christian, I would ask you, Join me, join my wife. Let's pray that God would give us a greater awareness of just how bad we were, which would intensify our worship and our gratitude for what he's done. And then if you're not a Christian here today, understand that you're not just making a few mistakes in your life. Understand that you're in rebellion against your creator. Number two, by nature, that's all you can do. And number three, your conduct is affirming both. Is it your sins are affirming your nature and affirming your rebellion. And the only hope you have is to run. Right now in your heart. And I'm not asking you to pray a prayer. I'm just saying cry out to God that he would show you your separation and then show him the, show you the glorious nature of the Lord Jesus who lived and died for you to take away your transgressions, to give you new birth and to forgive you of all your sins. And he will do it based on the authority of who he is and what he's done. But if you leave here trying to change yourself, uh, see you next week and we'll talk about this again is because you can't. May God help us to see our depravity as Christians, as well as non-Christians, that draw us to the magnification of the glory of the gospel of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank You so much for loving us, and thank You for showing us just how broke we really are. And thank You that You didn't leave us to what we deserved, and that's leaving us to ourselves. May we magnify the gospel as we see the magnitude of our sins our transgressions, our iniquity. And for our friends who are here that don't know Christ, please don't let them think they can fix themselves. May they cry out for mercy. And may you show them the saving grace in Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen.